c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tourette, don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Still Janelle. And today we are starting our third part for the FLQ, the Front de Libération du Québec. Hooray! Killing people for a free and independent Quebec. Also, we have a third co-host today. <laughs> yes, I have a very large dog. I actually have several co-hosts in the room with me. You you cannot see it, but I'm surrounded by about 200 pounds of dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's a threatening amount of dog. I, I don't so much have uh, a pet as I have a posse. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen photos. All of your sister's dogs are like half carpet lint, half bear. She's very startling when you're walking in the woods and you see her out of the corner of your eyes because she moves fast. <laughs> <laughs> On February 26th, during a week of Quebecois Palestinian solidarity, two police officers pulled over a van with a faulty taillight north of Sherbrooke. The van contained Jacques Lanctot, 25, Pierre Marcil, 24, a sawed-off rifle, and an unusually large wicker basket. One might say a suspiciously man-sized wicker basket. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think you can pull over a van in Quebec and not find a man named Pierre. That's just sort of a given. <laughs> it's one of the requirements. It's like when you get pulled over, license and registration and a man named Pierre. <laughs> <laughs> the legal requirement. <laughs> Excellent. After patting down Lanco and Marcel, police discovered a document titled Operation Telephone, containing the Montreal address of Moise Golan, the Israeli consul and trade attaché, as well as a draft news release announcing the abduction of Mr. Golan and the names and phone numbers of several prominent media figures. Oh, well that's telling. <laughs> Maybe if you're going to kidnap somebody, don't drive around with a press release announcing it in your car. Yeah, like, <laughs> you couldn't have left that at home? <laughs> that is extremely suspicious. I'm saying, thinking, make two trips. <laughs> I mean, between this and, like, my understanding of Les Mis, I understand that French people just like to carry incriminating letters with them at all times. That's what I've learned from the combination of those things. If you had read some Victor Hugo, you would have <laughs> known not to do this. <laughs> Settle down, Fantine. <laughs> Admittedly, he's a bit of a difficult read. Les <laughs> actually has like an entire chapter that is just an explanation of Parisian slang. <laughs> I have a copy of Les Mis keeping a bookshelf level right now. <laughs> <laughs> You could you could beat a goat to death with Les Mis. If, if anyone breaks in, it's going to be the first thing I reach for. Not my dog. God knows she's no help. But uh, the copy of Les Mis may save us all. What also bothers me is just, like, why did you have a broken taillight? When you are doing illegal shit, that is the time where you dot your P's and Q's. Like, when you dot your I's and cross <laughs> you, your T's. You dot your P's and Q's? That is criminal mastermind. That's about the level these guys are at. 
<laughs> that is when you dot whatever fucking letters of the alphabet one appropriately dots. Admittedly, I'm not entirely sp- thinking in English at the moment. I'm just saying, when you're committing a big crime, make sure you're not committing any little ones. Yeah, like, if you're kidnapping, don't have a burnt-out taillight or change lanes without signaling. Like, it's, it's the little things they'll nab you on. Both men were charged with illegal possession of a firearm and conspiracy to commit kidnapping, though Lanco went to ground after being released on bail. On the 28th, the FLQ perpetrated a series of coordinated attacks. First, a 10.20 a.m. bombing behind a General Electric building, and five minutes later, a bombing outside an intern's resident at Queen Mary Veterans Hospital. Then, while first responders were distracted, an armed robbery of a case populaire at the University of Montreal, only a few blocks away from the hospital. Which, as a note, a case populaire is a sort of member-owned credit union. It's basically a cooperative, socially-owned bank. Which feels like a weird thing for a group of self-avowed communists to rob. It's a weird thing, especially because I assume everyone who keeps money there is French. So it's a really weird thing for an anti-Anglo terrorist group to rob. Not only that, but they're French students. (laughs) Yeah, a communist French credit union that caters to the low income. It just... mm. Not exactly (laughs) on brand. (laughs) No. Rethink this, like, finance strategy. Maybe have a bake sale. I don't know. Uh, Like, French-Canadian cuisine lends itself well to bake sales. It is 300% pastry and sugar. Oh, it just, it tastes like heart disease and guilt. It's wonderful. um... Oh, man. I have so many memories of my French-Canadian aunt just force-feeding me cake. (laughs) Just... (laughs) Oh, there's a reason this podcast is both fat and French. These go hand in hand. Apparently my grandmother, Lucille, who I I, I never met, she would just, like, bake personal pies for all her grandchildren. And you might be thinking, like, a personal pie, so, like, a miniature pie. No. (laughs) (laughs) Just a whole-ass pie you get to yourself. (laughs) And we know what we're about, She's gonna ask if you're ready for dinner. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, French cuisine. Oh, boy. In my culture, we have a pie that's just sugar. That's all it's in it. Literally. Literally just a sugar pie. You thought pecan pie was bad. We don't even bother with the nuts. No, it is It is basically a pecan pie without nuts in it. That's and, and it's a deep dish pie filled to the top. You basically need to book your next dental cleaning as you're eating it. Canada discovered insulin for the very reason that we had the deepest desire We would not let a little thing like diabetes stop us (laughs) from eating as much sugar as we can physically withstand. No, absolutely not. But I mean, if if you're going to try to finance your anti-Anglo terrorist movement, and I'm sure this is advice I cannot legally give, but like, don't you just hold up a Scotiabank? Like, is that not what you do? Just rob a CIBC? I don't know. Three masked men, armed with submachine guns, escaped with nearly 59000 in cash. June 2nd, the Justice Minister, Jérôme Chaquette, announced a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the terrorists, as is standard. That same day, uh, 350 pounds of dynamite were stolen from a quarry in Laval. Do they just leave dynamite? Like, what is... <laughs> June 5th, 1970, the new Barassa government the third administration since the FLQ bombing started, unveiled a long-overdue 
update to Quebec's extremely laissez-faire regulations concerning the distribution and storage of explosives, requiring a permit from the SQ for the purchase of dynamite, the return of unused explosives to the vendor, and anti-theft precautions in storage. Are they just required to put it in a shed now? They can no longer just leave it outside unattended? Like, (laughs) what a blow that will be. (laughs) The fact that it took the third provincial government to come into power (laughs) to say, hey, maybe we should do something about the fact that we have an active terrorist group stealing explosives. (laughs) It, It just, it seems like an oversight, you know? (laughs) <laughs> it seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> it would be like if the government came out tomorrow and be like, you know what? That's enough. You can no longer leave large vats of open lie in the streets. Like, why is that? Why Why did it take us this long to do that? What is, what is that? <laughs> There's some things that you hear on the news, and it's like, it's now illegal to feed whiskey to toddlers. And you're just like, well, that's objectively a very good thing for you to be doing. But I have so many questions. I should be happy, but I'm just upset. (laughs) Why was that allowed yesterday? And why didn't I know about it? Right, it's like saying, like, oh yeah, medical waste can no longer be served in restaurants. It's like, wait, hang on, what? (laughs) Or like a couple of years ago when Canada banned bestiality and everyone was like, hang on. What? That was actually due to an extremely disturbing Supreme Court case where this dude claimed that the bestiality laws with which he was being charged specified penetration. (laughs) And, uh... Wow, what? Wow, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, the Supreme Court found that, yeah, he was right, uh, and then we very quickly had to go, like, whoops, better make that illegal. (laughs) (sighs) Oh... Uh, similarly, we also, uh, intentionally decriminalized duels and witchcraft. Canadian scandals are the best scandals. (laughs) Oh, yeah, remember that time when we uh, briefly bestiality was legal? (laughs) (sighs) That was fun. When we we realized it wasn't illegal. Yeah, when when we noticed, we immediately fixed that. Same as in... Yeah, in Canadian law, prostitution is not outlawed, but spending the money you get from being a prostitute is illegal. It's living off the proceeds. Yeah, you can't be charged with with uh, with prostitution. You are charged with living off the means. So, like, you can fuck for money. <laughs> but you've got to keep it in a shoebox under your bed, I guess. You just have to have this big pile of, like, <laughs> slutty cash just hanging around. <laughs> Yeah, because it was a problem when I used. I mean, this is not a funny joke, but I'm dead inside, so this is funny to me. But I Go used to, I used to work with prostitutes quite a few when I was working with uh, homeless. Not youth. as a prostitute. But... No, no, not as coworkers, as clients. Let's be clear. <laughs> but a lot of them, like, were having their like elderly grandmothers charged with prostitution-related crimes because they oh, were giving no. grandma rent money, and that is living off the means of prostitution. <laughs> It is illegal for anyone to spend the money, not just you. So if if you make a living through sex work in Canada and you provide grandma with grocery money, they can technically go after her for that, which is absurd. Mabel's going to jail. How is the public safer? I don't know. That's been Chanel's public rant for today. Shortly before 5 a.m. June 6th, 
another bomb exploded in an alcove between a medical center and a rooming house, though the suspected target was the nearby Club Canadien, popular with francophone businessmen. This assuming that the FLQ didn't have a particular grudge against the middle-aged Greek couple living in the rooming house and were just terrorizing them entirely incidentally. I don't think they even knew who they were trying to terrorize at this point. You could just fling grenades into any given crowd in Montreal and hit more important strategic targets than whatever the FLQ was doing. Honestly. They're, they're bombing empty buildings, alleyways, sheds, random Greek people. Like, what? How is this How is this doing anything? I don't know what Miklos did to you. <laughs> Leave him out of this. <laughs> are, the, are the French being personally victimized by the existence of Baklava? Like, what is... What's happening? <laughs> June 16th, shortly after midnight, a radio station received an anonymous call claiming that a bomb had been planted behind the IBM factory in the suburb of Saint Laurent. The bomb squad arrived at 1.20 a.m. They found two bombs, each in its own blue canvas bag, each containing about 40 pounds of dynamite, both of which had been placed under a railway loading platform. Bomb squad head Bob Cote used a pocket knife to cut a hole in the sides of both bags to get a better look. The timers used were standard open-faced kitchen timers, which had been modified with a nail, another nail inserted into a bicycle brick pad rigged to face each other, so that when the timer ran out, the nails would touch, closing the circuit and detonating the bombs. Upon examination, Cote found that in both cases, the canvas of the bags had become wedged between the nails, meaning that if anyone had lifted the bags, the material might have come loose, closing the circuit and causing a full detonation. I just love that the Canadian police dug into a homemade explosive with a pocket knife. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the most Canadian thing I've heard on this podcast so far. This bomb squad? What bomb squad? Gordon's got a pocket knife. We're all set. Just a man named <laughs> Bob with a pocket knife. Keeping keeping the city safe. The fucking thin blue line. <laughs> it's just Bob with his Swiss army. No sense of self-preservation. This is the only army I need. You just you find a homemade explosive and your first instinct is to stab it. Bob is very lucky that he didn't end up as a paste. At 2 a.m. the same night, a bomb exploded between the McGill University Engineering and Chemistry buildings, punching a massive hole in the engineering building, rupturing a pipe, tearing off two doors, and shattering dozens of windows. Well, they're uh, engineers. They'll know how to fix it. That was my thought exactly. I'm like, I mean... <laughs> we made the same joke. <laughs> it could be worse if the chemistry building had gotten, gotten hit. <laughs> Blow up the liberal arts building. They're fucked. They'll just write mediocre poetry about it. I was gonna say, you're allowed to make that joke. You have a liberal arts degree. <laughs> you're all set. <laughs> uh, another bomb, planted at Domtar and Chemicals Research Laboratory, had been set to detonate at 1.15, but failed due to faulty wiring. Hmm. Better stab it and get a look. Better take my trusty machete. <laughs> Open this baby up. <laughs> Was a jackhammer not available? <laughs> Let's just get my saber out. It was given to me by my grandfather. <laughs> Let's open this bomb with uh. another bomb. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Informants provided several names to investigators, which then led them to a secluded summer cottage in the town of Prévost, 50 kilometers to the north of Montreal. 
After watching the cottage for two weeks and listening to into conversations via a bug planted inside, police concluded it was a terrorist hideaway and raided it in the morning of June 22nd. Thirty officers in plain clothes, suddenly emerging from the woods and descending upon the cottage, arresting the occupants, three men and one woman, one of whom was Francois Longteau, 21, brother of Jacques Longteau. Again, this is a story about Quebec. There's going to be men named Francois and Jacques. It's, it's just a given. <laughs> I, I just love the image of just 30 French-Canadian police officers dressed like dads ready for a summer barbecue, just walking out of the woods. <laughs> like some kind of avant-garde horror movie. <laughs> Canadian police, everybody. Upon searching the premises, police likewise discovered 12 balaclavas, a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun, two pistols, two revolvers, bomb-making paraphernalia, and a carton with over $28,000 from the University of Montreal Case Populaire Robbery, and a list of those who had received a cut thereof. Further, officers found a large syringe, a small vial of liquid anesthetic, and a pair of handcuffs. So just every suspicious thing you can have. Absolutely every single dubious object, like all of these things, would be suspicious in of themselves. All together, however. I feel like if you buy all these things at the same time, Home Depot is obligated to call the police. If, if you went to a Home Depot and bought bleach, duct tape, handcuffs, and a bone saw, they'd have fewer questions. Police later found some 350 pounds of dynamite in the basement of one of the arrested men's father's uh, home in Laval. They likewise searched the apartment that the arrested man and Francois Longteau shared in Montreal and found 250 copies of a communique announcing the kidnapping of the American consul, Harrison Burgess, and demanding, among other things, the release of 13 members of the FLQ. Okay, pretty suspicious. I, it, I'm sure there's an entirely innocent explanation. <laughs> my, my source did not indicate whether or not uh, this other fellow, his name was uh, Morancy, uh, they did not indicate whether or not his father was in on it, but like, I imagine he wasn't. And I cannot <laughs> imagine how offended my parents would be if I just left several hundred pounds of explosives in their house. <laughs> My parents would have some thoughts, gotta say. They, they, we, we would be having words after I'd been released from prison. <laughs> Visiting hours would be at best awkward. 6.28 a.m., June 24th, Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day, a bomb exploded at the headquarters of the Department of National Defense in downtown Ottawa, killing 50-year-old Jean d'Arc Saint-Germain a Franco-Canadian grandmother who was working the night shift in the communications center where the bomb had been planted. They're literally killing French grandmas. How is this fighting for French independence? What is this? How did they go all the way to Ottawa and still manage to kill an innocent French woman? <laughs> what the f- Yeah, right, you're, you're, you're in a predominantly Anglo city. It's, it's sort of half and half, but... You, you literally are bombing Ontario, and you're still killing your own people. July 10th, shortly after 3 a.m., garbage man Henri Bellevaux walked into an alley behind the former headquarters of the Royal Bank of Canada, where he spotted a clearly full olive green backpack sitting on a trash can. He picked it up and began walking back to the garbage truck. No, never- he heard the backpack ticking. Yeah, never pick up a mysterious backpack. 
he reached inside and pulled oh, out a bomb. My God. Then immediately dropped it. No. In the all backpack. Of, what? All of <laughs> he, that is terrible. He noticed more dynamite, <laughs> so he dropped that too. As someone who lives in a large city that has pretty much constant threats of terrorism, like, you couldn't do more things wrong here. He picks up a mysterious package that's just left in public. Don't do that. He hears it ticking, so he opens it, and then he just bounces the bomb like it's a fucking volleyball. Like, what? Well, he doesn't even look in first. He just reaches inside and pulls something out. He just decides to yeet the bomb. That's not good. <laughs> Luckily for Monsieur Bellevaux, instead of blowing his legs off, hitting the pavement jarred one of the wires loose, preventing the bomb from detonating as scheduled at 4 a.m. Yeah, don't don't take lessons from this at home, though, kids. Like, the answer to bomb diffusion is not yeet. Yeah, do not throw the bomb, do not drop the bomb, do not touch the bomb, do not stab the bomb. That's, that's not a reliable diffusing situ- that's not how you do that that's not going to work to for the you. professionals let yep. them get their fingers blown off you you typically cannot throw a bomb outside its own blast radius like you're absolutely going to get exploded yeah at best you are just making sure that the body can be identified yeah that's all you're really doing typically yeah most of us don't have that kind of arm like unless you are a perfect, unless you are Peyton Peyton Manning. No, that's the wrong person. wrong the wrong person. This that's that's we're a not... Canadian politician. Who's the guy who throws balls real far? No, that is Peyton Manning. Oh, never mind then. I thought I was. Oh, I thought I was saying Preston Manning. Preston Manning is a random Canadian politician. Peyton Manning is a football player. Unless yes, you are Peyton Manning, do not chuck a bomb. And even if I you don't... are Peyton Manning, you need to worry about who's wherever the wherever the bomb you chuck. I was going to say, I don't think I want to give legal advice to Peyton Manning that involves pick up a bomb and throw it. I personally, Mm. Peyton Manning, if you're listening to this. He's not. Find a bomb and throw it. (laughs) Do not. I want to see it on the news. I want to be influential. You are a monster. (laughs) If he takes that kind of advice from people... He he deserves whatever he gets. <laughs> any any oh. any sane person who chooses to listen to me, they get their just desserts. <laughs> <laughs> probably true, but also probably legally indefensible. <laughs> that does not sound like a defense that will hold up in a court of law. So that's enough out of you. July 11th saw the successful dismantling of a bomb outside the Mount Royal office of Wawanisa Insurance and an explosion that destroyed a Buick on the Metropolitan Expressway, killing the driver, which, upon investigation, turned out to be a mob hit. Oh. A completely unrelated mob hit. Oh, and they they blamed the poor, innocent FLQ. Yeah, it's funny because uh, before the FLQ, the most common bombings in Montreal were all mob hits. I I think that's probably still true. <laughs> I mean, statistically, <laughs> <laughs> Montreal is uh, who the hmm, the the mafia didn't uh, they didn't go away in North America. They just moved to Montreal. Uh, that night, security discovered a Volkswagen Beetle with a key with the key in the ignition in an enclosed alleyway at the center of, of of a block of four buildings that composed the head office of the Bank of Montreal. Yes, suspicious. The first police officer to arrive at the scene got into the driver's seat to examine the vehicle, 
Holy and heard shit. The telltale ticking of a clock beneath the passenger seat and called for backup. All right, guys, there's an active bomber out there, and we keep finding all these mysterious backpacks and vans. We should just dig around in them. The bomb was uh, in a green garbage bag beneath the passenger seat, and there were a, was a further box full of dynamite in the back seat, and another box full of dynamite in the trunk. In total, the car contained 130 pounds of dynamite. Okay, settle down, Timothy McVeigh. But, uh... <laughs> also, like, I'm just imagining the police just gave it a hearty kick and then poked it with a stick. Like... <laughs> no, so, it, was, it was just Bob Cote again with his penknife. I'm, I'm less than impressed with Canadian bomb diffusion, I've gotta say. July 21st, police headquarters received a vaguely threatening letter addressed to Sar- uh, Sergeant Robert Cote of the anti-terrorist Gestapo, signed the AFQ, the Anarchist Front of Quebec. Uh, but for the next few months, the bombers went quiet. Also, it seems a little strange that if they're gonna blow up the center of one bank, that they would choose the Bank of Montreal. This is, I think, indicative of the growing strength of the socialist wing of the FLQ. One of the reasons why you see more and more attacks on francophone businesses, francophone banks, the reason why you start seeing that is because they are lashing out at what they consider collaborators and uh, capitalists. But then That's you're a just, lot of the motivation here. You're you're just not even fighting for anything at this point. You're just a terrorist. I mean, you were to begin with, but if you're if you're strategy to free Quebec is to blow up as much of Quebec as possible. That's kind of the problem with terrorist telephone is you quickly lose control of the message when more and more people get involved and they don't really communicate with one another and there's no real discussion of the best strategy. Like, look, you can have a free and independent Quebec, or you can have communism, but you can't do both at once. Just prioritize. You gotta focus. You gotta, right? fight, go, you gotta focus the message. Once you have free and independent Quebec, then you can have communism. You just, you gotta, you gotta not overload too much. You gotta not have too much on your plate. For a terrorist group, the major advantage of bombs is their capacity for indiscriminate casualties and carnage. For a terrorist group with populist ambitions, however, this is likewise their major major disadvantage. Which brings us to Jacques Lanfou and Paul Rose. In a later interview, Rose said, quote, The violent strategy of previous FLQ groups, bombs, dynamite, did not interest us. We felt that such acts, particularly when they created innocent victims, tended to alienate the very people we hoped to reach. Yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that the people who just blew grandma into chunks are on your side and that you should be happy to see them. It's a little off message. It's just, I I don't want to side with them. I don't, I don't, you know. And like, to be clear, uh, my personal view on Quebecois separatism, I prefer having Quebec as part of Canada. I like Quebec, and I'm not from Quebec, so if Quebec left, they would no longer be in the same country as me. But I generally agree with the idea that if a group of people wish to leave a country, that they should be allowed to do so. But it doesn't feel like blowing up innocent men, women, and children is 
way to do that. It feels like the way to do that is through the normal political process. But the FLQ, like, a lot of their members were deeply against the Parti Québécois, the actual legitimate party that was arguing for separatism within the normal political structure. They viewed it as a co-option of the revolution. Indiscriminate murder is not typically how you gain political popularity. Setting aside all the moral arguments, it is not a crowd pleaser. It's not good press, no. It doesn't no. it doesn't read well. The optics are bad. But for real though, like truck bombs are the weapon of like antisocial weirdos who call women females and are way too close to their mothers. It's it's not a good populist weapon. You need something a little more targeted. Uh, Jacques Lanco grew up in the third child out of ten of an anti-Semitic white supremacist father who he hated. Oh, good start. That's pro- oh, Wow. <laughs> what a start to life. Yeah, he grew up on a Whew. steady diet of, like, hardcore Catholicism and vicious anti-Semitism. All right, so this is going nowhere good. <laughs> Longto was an early recruit to the FLQ, joining in 1963 at the age of 17. He was known to police as a frequent participant in protests and riots and a leader of the Mouvement de Libération du Taxi. Good to know that the FLQ has an after-school program, I guess. Uh, I wonder if they have uh, merit badges. Right, like... This is your bomb-building badge. Here's your, <laughs> here's your active descent badge. Here's your fuck the police badge. Right. All right. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Rose came from a blue-collar background and financed his education through working as a longshoreman, hotel bellboy, and elevator operator. Longshoreman is such a Quebec profession. It's such such a (laughs) Quebec... And and, and hotel bellboy and elevator operator are so 1960. Yes, they are. This is... Wow. Okay, so we have an anti-Semitic elevator operator. <laughs> well, I mean, Jacques Longto himself was not an anti-Semite. He was not oh. a white supremacist. He grew up in an anti-Semitic environment and that is why he hated his father. I'm still pretty sure that he's gonna murder somebody, but it's alright. Good instinct. Okay. But, uh, I mean, he's in this story and I'm <laughs> I specifically don't... outlining him. I don't want to <laughs> praise him for overcoming his, his background because it sounds like he's about to kill a bunch of people. After graduation, Paul Rose spent two years teaching special needs children, and in every picture I have ever seen of him, he looks like he just woke up from a coma after drinking an entire can of paint thinner. Part of that is because he appears to have a very laissez-faire attitude to facial grooming. Like, his his <laughs> beard was questionable at best. Oh, but good. But also because he was partially blinded in one eye as a child, And in every photo he is in, like, one of them is just doing its own thing. Alright, Lazy Eye and Unabomber Beard. We're off to a great start. (laughs) On the day of the 1968 Saint-Jean-Baptiste riot, Rose was arrested and thrown into a crowded paddy wagon, where he wound up next to a badly beaten, unconscious young demonstrator. Rose used his own shirt to clean the young man up, and this was the beginning of his association with Lanto. Damn. (laughs) <laughs> Started with a kind deed, but- Friendship to last a lifetime. I assume shit's about to hit the fan in a very big way, so. 
Blanco headed a cell consisting, among others, of his brother Francois, his sister Louise, his brother-in-law Jacques Cosette Trudel, and Marc Carbonneau. Rose headed another cell consisting of his brother Jacques, Francis Simard, and Yves Langlois. There are so many Jacques and Francois in this story. I'm angry. <laughs> There's like four names that you get to have in French. If you're a man. Francois, Jacques, Jean, and Pierre. That's it. That's all the names we have. You're just gonna have to share. Don't like it? Fuck you. Your name is Jean. Sometimes you get to have two. You get to be Jean-Pierre, Jean-Paul, Jean-Claude. Oh, you can you can spice yeah. it up, but no. Mr. Rose came from a poor family, so he, he got to be just Paul. <laughs> Oh, God. They didn't have enough names to go around. We couldn't afford to hyphenate. I, I generally have a, a tendency to use people's last names, but in this case, it really did help clarify shit. <laughs> I mean, everyone in my family is named Jean. My father, Jean-Paul. My grandfather, Jean-Marie. We've got we've got one name. It's a good one. Oh, everyone in my family's name is Joseph. I mentioned on the last episode that my uncle had found out very late in life that his first name was actually Joseph rather than his middle name, uh, I checked in with my family, and it turns out the reason he found out that his actual first name was Joseph, which is also the first name of my grandfather, he found this out after he retired from CN Rail, and he got in an argument with a government official about his legal name when he was trying to collect his pension. <laughs> hey, that's also how my dad learned his name. Except he got yeah, transferred so. to Winnipeg by CN Rail and then got in an argument with the government when he tried to get a driver's same license. Person? We might be the same person. <laughs> Is this like a common French Canadian experience? You know, Argu working with for the government. CN Rail for years, trying Actually, to get your legal documents in order, and finding no, out you have a different name than you thought? It genuinely is. It's like one of the few high paying jobs available for. Blue-collar French-Canadian men, yes. Blue-collar French-Canadian men. It, it genuinely is a thing. Which was why, I guess, several people in the facades of several banks had to die. This is what we were fighting for. The right to not work at CN Rail. Just trying to escape the rail yard. It's, you know, it's funny, because like my grandfather is Joseph. Several of my uncles have Joseph somewhere in their name. And you once went through my family lineage, and you found a lot of Josephs. It's it's a lot of Josephs. <laughs> and not only are there a lot of Josephs, my middle name is Joelle. Everyone in my family is named Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hang out tomorrow with my cousin Joanne. It's gonna be fun. <laughs> oh, I could hang out with my brother John, my father John, my uncle John, my cousin John, and my grandfather John. We've got one fucking name in my family. <laughs> uh. French-Canadian life, my dude. French-Canadian life. <laughs> the Rose Group was the fundraising arm of the network, which they did through a combination of bank robberies, frauds, and credit card scams. Oh. In <laughs> it's not what I thought of when my- that's not what my mind went to when I, when I heard the word fundraising. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's technically fundraising, I guess. I mean, it's not exactly a bake sale, but it gets yeah. the job done. I guess you don't have a lot of, like, charity dinners for, like, let's bum the Anglos. That's not a popular cause. Uh, not exactly. Although they did have charity dinners to try to uh, fundraise for the release and uh, 
legal bills of several members of the FLQ, which is a weird thing looking back on. Yeah, I don't think that's going to be well attended. <laughs> you might be surprised, but uh, oh, <laughs> I wish you weren't. <laughs> like, if, if somebody threw a charity dinner to post bail for Timothy McVeigh, people would have thoughts. <laughs> they would have opinions. There would be, yeah, there'd be some op-eds. <laughs> In January 1970, the Rose Group bought a house near Longueuil, across the river from Montreal, as well as a farm in Saint-Anne-de-la-Rochelle, 80 kilometers to the east, intended to act as a training base and people's prison. A people's uh, prison? Good, good. Heavy air quotes around people's prison. Mm. Uh, in March, Rose rented a bungalow on an isolated ro- road near the Canadian Armed Forces Air Base in the South Bank neighborhood of Saint-Hubert. Like the chicken restaurant. What? All I think, Saint-Hubert is a brand of gravy. Anyway, carry oh. on. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. It's a Quebec-based grand- brand of poutine gravy and chicken dipping sauce. Oh, I'd probably be fond of it then. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I I don't want to be a stereotype, but I fucking love poutine. I was gonna say, is gravy your second favorite beverage behind milk? Because <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> I mean, it's a fine line between- I could see you rocking up to a restaurant and ordering some sipping gravy, so, you know. <laughs> I, I just go up, pull up to a KFC, I'm like I'd, like, I'd like a large gravy, please. And they're like, do you want anything with that? I'm like, a straw, please. <laughs> 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 oh no, it's funny because you're gonna do it. <laughs> <laughs> the Lotho group was behind the kidnapping plots. The first against Israeli Consul Golan had failed, forcing Jacques Lotho into hiding. The second against American Consul Harrison Burgess had gone even worse, as during the raid at the Prevost cottage, one of the conspirators had ar- arrested had a map of, of the Saint Anne de la Rochelle farm resulting in a police raid the next day. Oh my god, they're so bad at this. So bad. Why would you have a map? You know where it is. <laughs> Do you have an inventory list? A membership list with you? Is there any other documents you'd like the police to have? Lonto, who had been hiding on at the farm as a fugitive, snuck out of the house with the Rose Brothers to hide in the granary, while the others hid upstairs, leaving Simar and Carbono on the main floor where they greeted police with false names. Upon an initial search, the police found nothing suspicious and left, but the incident nonetheless forced the network to abandon the farm, switching to the Saint-Hubert house as their new base of operations. Jacques and Louise Cossette Trudel handled scouting out potential targets, first paying a visit to the Queen's Printer bookshop in Montreal to check the Who's Who directory, which contained a list of various diplomats living in Montreal, alongside their home and business addresses. They watched several different diplomats before focusing their attention on Burgess, the American consul, and James Cross, the British trade commissioner, both of whom lived on Red Path Crescent. Also, both of whom have no say over Canadian politics. (laughs) None whatsoever! (laughs) By the end of August, Longto and Rose were at odds. Longto, feeling the pressure of police attention, wanted to move forward, to strike while they had the chance, while Rose wanted to wait, believing that they, they lacked the resources to pull the plot off and fearing police might already know too much. He was likewise opposed to abducting Cross, who he viewed as a mere symbol of cultural colonialism, which was less substantial than the economic domination exemplified by the American consul and others. In September, the two groups split, with Longtho getting Longlois in the divorce. 
<laughs> I like that they have a fission over like, all right, we've been indiscriminately killing people for like years now, but kidnapping this British guy, too much. We're going too far. It, it, it's interesting because neither of these two, these two groups, have been involved in the fatal incidents coming before. Oh, they're like a new wave FLQ. They're like yeah, they're new wave. They're new they're FLQ to move beyond the violence of the previous groups. Yeah, so admittedly, snatch a dude isn't really uh, doing much for that. The Trudel Cosettes rented an apartment in northern Montreal under an assumed identity on September 12th and prepared it to house a hostage. They rented a second apartment on Saint-Hubert Street, not the same as the Saint-Hubert from before, there's just a lot of shit named Saint-Hubert, near the Metropolitan Expressway as a base and hideout for Lanctot and Carboneau. The group spent the last half of September rehearsing, before coming to the conclusion that they would need at least one more group member to pull the job off smoothly. Monsieur Cosette Trudel suggested a young man of his acquaintance, Nigel Hammer, who agreed to join in the plot, no questions asked. That's that doesn't sound like a smart young man. Just gotta Yeah, throw it, that it's out also there. not a very francophone name. No, it's not. I think he's fake. I think he's I think he just wants to feel included. Here's the thing. Nigel Hammer was an Anglophone. He was oh. born in the UK. What? His so why... middle name was Barry. <laughs> so why is he doing any of this? Apparently <sighs> he just wanted to be part of a terrorist group. <laughs> like, hey, British dude, want to ruin your fucking life for a group of people who hate you? And he's like, yeah, that sounds like a great time. <laughs> Sup, let's do it. No, like, it, and it's funny, we have very little idea of why Nigel Hammer did this, because he never gave interviews afterward. So he just casually joins a bro-francophone terrorist group. Did the dude even speak French? I have no idea. Presumably? Google Translate wasn't around, so I don't know how they're giving him terrorist instructions if he doesn't. I'm like, why did you know this guy? Why did you invite him? Why did you include, like, an Anglophone in the first place? <laughs> what?! <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's like it's it's like their token black friend he's their token he's their token friend. anglophone he's like, i have no anglo? idea that he's they keep him as a pet they're just like well he's the dumbest person we know let's get him on board like what nigel is for one the whitest most anglo name possible it's the most british name i've ever heard. they don't make them even any more british than that short of being named chadwick this is pretty much as british and white as it gets as, as anglo as it gets you cannot be more of a wasp but too like i don't i'm not really sure that i want somebody with whose judgment is this poor to join in my terrorist plot no Cosette Trudel had Hammer assist another FLQ cell, led by history professor at the Université du Québec à Montréal, uh, Robert Como, uh, steal 1,100 no. pounds of dynamite. No. Get back here. What is that? No. No, 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 no. Friend of yours? Is it spelled the same? Yes, it is. So C-O-M-E-A-U. Oh, Robert Como. No. No. You don't understand. All Comos are related. It's, it's not a very common last name. Oh, I'm aware. We're all descended from the same guy. What? What the shit? You share blood 
with at least one terrorist. <laughs> My god, I thought I had kind of gotten out of the, like, you know, like, white people are always afraid that their ancestors own slaves. I kind of, like, got out of that because, like, my my mom didn't move to Canada until like 1970, and my my dad's side is Acadian, so it's just 400 years of oppression. They've they've what? always been too poor to, poor to own people. <laughs> I have yeah, we own like three sheep, and the government documented that every single year because we weren't supposed to be in the country. Um, no, I didn't want to be related to a terrorist. What the fuck? <laughs> this isn't even your fight. Mr. Como, we're Acadian. Go back to New Brunswick. Go be oppressed there. <laughs> On October, October 3rd, Cosette Trudel met with Hammer a second time, explaining the nature of the plot. The next day, he picked him up from an agreed meeting, meeting point, blindfolded him, then brought him to the North Montreal apartment to meet the rest of the so-called Liberation Cell. It was only on October 4th, the eve of the abduction, that the final decision was made between, between Burgess and Cross. They would take Cross. Not only for the greater symbolism of abducting a British citizen, but because he had the more regular, predictable schedule. James Cross was a British diplomat, but he was Irish by birth and educated in Dublin. In the summer of 1970, he and his wife, Barbara, had celebrated the marriage of their daughter, Susan, to a Montreal local. Cross Aww. had turned 49 on the 29th of September. On Monday, October 5th, Cross skipped his usual morning walk and was discussing the week's itinerary with his wife as he dressed when the doorbell rang. The maid, Analia Santos, answered the door holding her baby to greet a young man dressed as a deliveryman. He was holding a long, gaily wrapped package. Wait, they kidnapped him by ringing the front doorbell? Yes, they did. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> the young man said, Birthday present for Mr. Cross. You'll have to sign for it. When Santos said that she didn't have a pen, the young man replied, Here's one, and pulled out a revolver, forcing his way into the house. Oh, that's not a pen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it has the right kind of ink. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it would be amazing if it really was a pen, though. He just yeah, it would just... be. It would be great. This story would be so much better if, like, literally... You just, like, pulled back the safety and, like, a pen shot out of the... <laughs> that would be... And then he just leaves. That'd be kind of incredible. <laughs> it would be, it would, that would be great. <laughs> As Holy is. Shit. He, although, it would also be great if he just, like, signed that way. Like, he just pulls out a clipboard, hands you the revolver, and you've just got to, like, double tap the bottom of the form. <laughs> and it's a much better story than what ends up happening. Two other members of the Liberation Cell, Lankley Langlois and Langteau, who had hidden by the corner of the house, ran up the stairs after them, one of them grabbing the package, ripping it open, and pulling out a submachine gun. Hammer, the delivery man, caught Cross in his shirt and underpants on his way to the bathroom. He pointed the gun at Cross and ordered him into the onto the floor. Cross backed into the bedroom and lay down. Hammer forced Cross to roll onto his front and cuffed his hands behind his back. Another member of the cell brought the maid and her baby into the bedroom at submachine gun point, while Hammer forced Cross into the dressing room, dressed him, and slipped a jacket over his shoulders, hiding the cuffs. The kidnappers pulled the bedroom phone line out of its socket and ordered Mrs. Cross not to phone the police for an hour. They then took Cross downstairs and outside to a waiting taxi. They forced him to lie down in the back seat and covered him with an old carpet. They drove Cross to a nearby garage where Mr. Cosette Trudel was waiting. There, they pulled him out of the taxi, put a gas mask with the eyes blacked out over his head, then Cosette Trudel and Langlois pushed him into another car. 
re-blindfolded Hammer, stowed their weapons in the trunk, and drove him to the North Montreal apartment. Was nothing less sinister than a blacked-out gas mask available? That is so overkill if you need to blindfold somebody. A bandana will do. It's a horror s- movie shit. <laughs> a sleep mask will do. Like, there's just, there's so many options that don't involve gas mask. Was a fucking 15th century plague doctor mask not available? Like, what? You can just use, like, a burlap sack. Like, just double bag it and he won't be able to see. <laughs> Anything. And, like, why did you have one of those on hand? Right. There's nothing convenient about that in the slightest. It does amp up the horrifying factor quite a bit, but... I mean, but, like, only from the outside. Like, if you're in the gas mask, it's way less aesthetically creepy. (laughs) True. I've always wanted to have a gas mask. I'm, I'm absolutely sure, but you'll wear it to work and you will get fired. So... I mean, I didn't get fired for having a skull on my desk, so maybe the Canadian government is just a lot more reasonable than you think. (laughs) I think even the Canadian government has limits. That's my professional opinion. That being said, speaking as somebody who's looked into this, do not use old Soviet gas masks without checking what kind of filter is in them. A lot of them have gone bad, and they are carcinogenic. What? Why have you looked into this? Why is that a- I told you- I want to own a gas mask. Did you think I was joking? (laughs) A little. (laughs) (laughs) To be perfectly honest, yes. You were hoping I was joking. (laughs) Yes, I very much was. Thank you. Carboneau had stolen the taxi just that morning from a diamond taxi stand where he used to work. By simply walking in, grabbing a set of keys from their usual place, and leaving. Oh, good. Steal a vehicle that has a serious, like, a very identifiable number printed on the side. Perfect. He had had likewise removed the diamond taxi roof light and replaced it with one from LaSalle Taxi in order to cause confusion. As soon as the transfer was made, he and Longtho simply returned the vehicle to the taxi stand. This-this'll fuck him up. We'll just put a different light on top. It genuinely did cause a lot of confusion. The only witness to the kidnapping, other than the people who had been inside the house- was a gardener across the street who said that the kidnappers had shown up in a LaSalle taxi. Oh, well, I apologize. I take back my doubts about their dumb strategy. It's not that dumb (laughs) after all. The kidnappers placed Cross in the back bedroom of the apartment, where they replaced the gas mask with a hood, so apparently they had options, and recussed his hands in front of him, then ordered him to lie on a mattress on the floor. When Cross asked about their intentions, they read him their eight-page manifesto and full oh, ransom God. demands. Oh, a God. A halt to investigation of the FLQ, publication and broadcast of their the manifesto, release of the 23 members of the FLQ currently imprisoned, an aircraft for passage to Cuba or Algeria, a voluntary tax of $5,000 in gold bars, reinstatement of postal drivers who had been fired from their work, and the identity of the informant who had led the police to the cottage hideaway in Provost. All conditions non-negotiable to be met within 48 hours or Cross will be killed. I just like that, like, immunity and passage to Cuba gets the same priority as postal employment. That one really sticks out. It's one of these things is not like the others. Arson, murder, and jaywalking. One, I don't- I've, I've worked for the government. I'm telling you they don't do the hiring process in 48 hours. Not even close, buddy. But two, like- 
can you imagine, like, what is your demands? And it's just an eight-page French monologue. <laughs> You'd be like, no, I don't, I don't care anymore, actually. I, I want to die. I choose death. There's nothing good about an eight-page eight page amateur manifesto. manifesto. Yeah, anything that really can be described with the word manifesto is probably not something you want read to you while you're handcuffed on a mattress. Although it's funny, in French, uh, political platforms are actually called manifestos. Oh, fun. So it, it's a, yeah, I found that really strange, because like, it has a very different connotation in English. Yeah, there, there's something you scrawl in crayon on an Arby's napkin because the government is lizard people and you're gonna go shoot up a mall. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's what that is in English. It's a slightly more, like, neutral term in French. <laughs> it's very much not in English. Nobody has a manifesto who is okay. Nobody has a perfectly reasonable manifesto. No, it's it's written by like the kind of person who spent time living inside a wall. Like it's not it's not okay. Now, cross was not what you might call entirely fluent in French. Oh, but he understood oh no. <laughs> that last part well enough and the implicit threat thereof. While the members of the Liberation Cell were fairly optimistic that the authorities would quickly accede to their demands, Frost's response can be basically summarized as, Cool, so I'm gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're in the hands of disorganized teenage French terrorists, one of whom is a British man named Nigel, so yes, you're absolutely <laughs> going to die. You're doomed. <laughs> oh, you're so fucked. Police established checkpoints on all bridges leading off the island of Montreal and distributed 3,000 leaflets with a description and headshot of Cross. By mid-afternoon, police had received a plain brown envelope from a mailbox at a UQAM pavilion at La Fontaine Park containing the eight-page manifesto and a communique regarding Cross's kidnapping. Police took Mrs. Cross to headquarters that afternoon, where they showed her a mugshots of various and known and suspected felkistes. She identified none other than Jacques Lanteau as one of the kidnappers. The RCMP likewise identified two sets of fingerprints lifted from the back page of the manifesto as belonging to Jacques Lanteau and Marc Carbonneau. This is the problem with being so sloppy about your record keeping. Everybody knows who you are. Also, You're not like, sneaky. Stop touching shit. <laughs> yeah, wear gloves to your kidnapping. This is fucking kidnapping 101. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to give you tips or anything. But this is basic shit. <laughs> <laughs> Even in the late 1960s to early 70s. At a certain point, is... getting kidnapped by these kind of amateurs is just insulting. Right, at least do this properly. On October 6th, Federal Secretary of State for External Affairs Mitchell Sharp gave, an, gave addresses in English and French announcing that the province and federal government had agreed to work together regarding the kidnapping, with Ottawa taking the lead due to the involvement of a foreign diplomat. Further, the government had no intention to fulfill any of the FLQ's stated demands, but nonetheless encouraged the kidnappers to establish some means of communication by which Mr. Cross's safe release could be renegotiated. You, they made this international when it really didn't have to be international. It could have been a purely Canadian concern. At the point where you are dragging in the British? <laughs> now you've upset Lizzie. You'll have upset, upset the queen. <laughs> the Liberation Cell released several more communiques, generally hiding them in phone booths or garbage bins, then calling one of two francophone radio stations, CKLM or CKAC, informing them of where to find the drop. 
This created a rather odd situation where the communiques would be immediately rushed to the radio stations and read live on air, meaning the public generally knew what they said faster than the government did. The cell steadily ceded ground, first extending the deadline by a day, then dropping several demands. The government, meanwhile, budged exactly an inch, allowing the manifesto to be broadcast by Radio Canada on the evening of October 8th, where it was read in a flat, inflectionless tone. On the morning of the 9th, the Liberation Cell issued two more communiques, one containing a note from James Cross to his wife as proof of life. The FOQ announced a temporary suspension of the threat to kill Cross until 6 p.m. October 10th, continued their demands for the release of their fellow Pelkists and the end to police investigation. We're temporarily not going to ice this guy. You better watch it, though. We're going to do it. We are going to do it, just at at a later time. We've only delayed your demise. It's kind of clear that these guys did not really have the stomach for what they were doing. No, I'm not entirely surprised. Killing people is much more difficult than it sounds on paper. Quebec Justice Minister Jérôme Chaquette announced shortly before the deadline that the government would not negotiate. That they could not. Quote, No society can expect that the decisions of its governments or its courts of law can be questioned or erased by blackmail, because this signifies the end of all social order. The government was willing to offer the kidnappers safe passage to another country, but that was all. Even if they should choose to remain in Canada, however, they would receive all possible leniency if they simply spared the life of James Cross. So Canada does negotiate with terrorists a little bit. Uh, Just a bit. Like a tad. Small negotiations with terrorists. Chaquette finished speaking at 6.15pm. Only a few minutes later, news broke out of a second kidnapping. Oh, for God's sake. After splitting with the Lanco group, the Rose brothers had spent some time traveling through the United States, committing bank fraud and buying firearms for via straw purchase. They, alongside Francis Simard, their 11-year-old sister Claire, and their mother Rose, eventually made their way to Dallas, Texas, which is where they were when they heard the news that Quebecois terrorists had kidnapped a British diplomat. And yes, their mother Rose did take her husband's name. Ugh. She was, in fact, Rose Rose. <laughs> I mean, at that point, you've got to, really, though. Right, right. If I if I met a man whose last name was Jessica, I don't care if he has, like, three eyes and only speaks in Pig Latin. I'm kind of tempted to marry him. Also, you, also, you don't care that he's a man. You're willing to overlook that. <laughs> I mean, the fact that he's a man is not any more relevant to me than if it was a woman whose name That's I was tr- tempted to take. <laughs> That's true. It's just... <laughs> if I met a woman whose last name was Jessica, I'd be like, hey, consider this. Follow not me really here. into the I institution of marriage among lesbians. But. But. We gotta do this. We gotta make this official. Tradition. <laughs> <laughs> and then she'd be like, um, so do you want your gravy or no? <laughs> Please leave this store. <laughs> the group immediately made their way back to Canada. And by late October 7th, they were near Albany, New York, close enough to pick up a CKAC broadcast of the FLQ Manifesto, 24 hours ahead of the Radio Canada broadcast. On the afternoon of October 8th, they returned to Longueuil before they dropped off Mrs. Rose and Claire at a nearby shopping center for fear that the police would be watching the Rose home. Simard and the brothers instead rented a motel room on Tachereau Boulevard to 
catch up on the events of the previous week, quickly coming to the conclusion that the Liberation Cell was losing its fight with the authorities. The answer, then, was to strengthen their hand. Another hostage. Their only real option for a base of operations was the Saint-Aubert bungalow in Longueuil, meaning that they couldn't abduct anyone on the island of Montreal. Police would place checkpoints on the bridges and they'd be trapped. This ruled out taking a diplomat, but not taking a member of the Quebec government. They turned instead to the nearby Longueuil constituency of Chambly, represented by prominent cabinet minister Pierre Laporte. Before entering politics, Laporte had been a longtime political reporter for Le Devoir, covering the Quebec National Assembly. He was a fierce critic of the corruption and patronage politics of the Union Nationale government under Premier Maurice Duplessis, otherwise known as the reason why, up until this year, there was a big fuck-off crucifix of the wall behind the Speaker's chair in the National Assembly. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> Duplessis even once barred Laporte from the press gallery after Laporte has implicated several ministers in a stock scandal. The best kind of scandal... Quebec, under Maurice Duplessis, was known as La, la Grande Noirceur, the Great Darkness. Um, it, oh. It's estimated that the heavy traditionalism of the Union Nationale government and their general disinclination towards investment in infrastructure and development left Quebec about a decade behind the rest of Canada in terms of development. And by, like, by patronage politics, I do mean, like, it was a well-known fact in Quebec that if you did not vote for the Union National Government, your riding wasn't getting its roads paved. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> also, I feel like with the hostage situation, though, like, it feels kind of like pets where it's like, you can't even take care of the one you have. You can't have a second one. <laughs> like, now, Timmy, you already have a 49-year-old diplomat. Well, it's like, you the one you have, you can't decide if you're going to kill him or not. You've just got him chained up on a mattress. You've got no real plan here. The reason why the Rose Brothers took Laporte is because they knew that Longto and, and his and the Liberation Cell didn't have a plan. They knew they didn't know what to do. And Rose is the one who said that they didn't have enough resources to do this. They didn't have enough resources to pull it off. So now he's going to sweep in and try to do this with fewer resources and less lead up. (laughs) Yeah, the answer to this situation was definitely not more hostages. In 1970, Laporte was a minister himself with two portfolios, labor and immigration, and held the position of parliamentary leader, making him a visible, well-known member of the government. The Rose Group opened up the phone book and found a local listing under the name of Pierre Laporte in Saint-Lambert. To confirm that they had the correct Pierre Laporte, because, you know, there's a lot of Pierres around here, (laughs) they called the phone number, which Mrs. Laporte answered, telling them that Pierre was busy and couldn't come to the phone. Holy shit. So they kidnap one guy by showing up at his door, and then the second guy, they just look him up in the phone book. Because why not? My god, if... I saw a tweet that was like, if phone books were still a thing, they'd be considered doxing. And I was like, well, I need to go <laughs> sit down. <laughs> the fact that you just have everybody's like information in a giant book that gets delivered to your house for free, whether you want it or not. It's what amazing. The, it's amazing. It's, it's very much an invention of a more innocent time. 
It, yeah, because holy shit, you can't be listed in the phone book now. No, absolutely not. My god, if, if, if people could look me up in the phone book the way they look me up on Facebook, I would just be inundated with calls from, like, Indian men who want to marry me. Nigerian men who want nudes. That's that's all that I get on Facebook. That's the two types of people who oh, message man, me. Oh man, you too? <laughs> I, wow. Mm. I went to Africa very briefly, and uh, I was popular. Where I was, like, a whole bunch of students, they would get, like, d- delivery drivers, and they'd call them to the university. I'd just be hanging out in the parking lot, and, like, this guy would drive up. He's from Pizza Hut or whatever, and he's just like, he's looking for, like, whoever called him, but then, like, sees me, and he decides it's time to chat. <laughs> <laughs> he knows uh, what he's about, son. A butch androgyne from Canada. <laughs> He just wants a sunburnt, overweight, gender-ambiguous Canadian. That's everybody's favorite. Yeah, apparently there's, like, a social distinction. In in Canada, the way I dress and the way I look screams butch lesbian. Um, That is true. And in Africa, apparently that's not what this means. (laughs) I'm fascinated. And I'm just like, this is the weirdest cultural difference I have ever seen. And, like, the guy I was there with, he was agog at this. He's just like, what the fuck? And I'm like, yeah, dude, just because you don't find me attractive. Wow. <laughs> yeah, not because... mean there is not a culture where this is appealing. <laughs> because in Canada, your whole look screams like, don't talk to me unless you're looking for a real woman who drives a truck. Yeah. And... <laughs> I'm just, I'm like, if, if if a man finds me attractive, I just assume he's into pegging. Wow. That's a thing you just said out loud on the podcast. <laughs> Alright. Okay. See, when men are attracted to me, I just assume that he's looking for a new mom. <laughs> I've and been you're not right entirely wrong. <laughs> I've been right ninety percent of the time. You're just you're just vaguely mom shaped. My current boyfriend mopped my apartment and did my laundry last weekend, and now I think I have to marry him. Yeah, just you must feel faint. <laughs> I do. I just I... is this what romance is? <laughs> I don't have to wipe your face and pack your lunch in the morning. I I I mean we have to. I am That's a dog. it. Next time he comes in and sweeps up your dirty dishes, you're just gonna be on one knee. <laughs> He does. It it upsets him so much that I leave dirty dishes in my room. So he's gonna, yeah, he's gonna come into my bedroom for his, like, daily sweep of the dishes that I've left there. And when he comes out into the hallway, I will absolutely be proposing. Like, you know what? This is... (laughs) This is love. I I can't do better than this. This is it. This is... This is the peak. (laughs) You don't need a mom? Holy shit. Run away with me. Huh. This is is the least Freudian relationship you've ever been a part of, and I'm so proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's good. That's all. That's all I want. Somebody who doesn't isn't out to fuck his own mother. So far, it's been astonishingly difficult to find. That night, Simar stood in the field behind the bungalow, watching it to make sure it wasn't under surveillance. The next day, the group recruited nineteen-year-old Bertie Lorty and took a trip to Montreal to buy wigs, mustaches, and balaclavas, and swung by a pawn shop to buy two M1 semi-automatic rifles. Oh, that's not a suspicious group of things to buy all at once. I mean, presumably they didn't buy them all in the same place. (laughs) Right, like, this is all over the news at this point. This kidnapping is, like, 
front page headline news. It's the only thing anybody's talking about. And you just rock up to a store to buy mustaches and a balaclava. It's gonna raise some eyebrows. Just saying. It's amazing what you could get away with buying in the 1960s. You could not (laughs) buy a semi-automatic at a pawn shop in this day and age. No! No, people will have... I mean, in some states you absolutely probably can, but it's... Not in Quebec, though! Not in Quebec, you can't. You can have beer at the corner store. That's about as as wild as it gets. Pierre and Françoise Laporte had planned to go out to dinner that evening, and Françoise was in the house getting dressed. Pierre, meanwhile, was playing football across the street with his 18-year-old nephew, Claude. Louise Laporte, Claude's mother was sitting in Pierre's car, watching her son and his uncle play. The moment was broken when a pale blue Chevrolet rocked down the street and came to a screeching halt. As Francoise stepped onto the porch, she saw two men aiming rifles at her husband's abdomen and forcing him into the car. Okay, yeah, that's upsetting. <laughs> she immediately ran back into the house and to call the police. Claude managed to get the license plate. But police checkpoints were too late to catch the kidnappers, whose hideout was less than 50 minutes' drive away. Hmm. The Rose Group forced Laporte onto the floor of the vehicle, brought him to the semi-attached garage of the hideout, where they blindfolded him, then brought him into a bedroom of the bungalow through a hole they had cut out of the garage wall for that very purpose. They they cut him a special... They cut him a little hostage hole? That's kind of adorable. They had a little hostage hole. (laughs) Get in there. (laughs) <laughs> Get in there. The front door's too good for you. Then they laid him on the on a bed and handcuffed him. There they took turns watching him until the next day when they released their very first three communiques. The first message from the FLQ read as follows. Faced with the stubborn refusal of the ruling authorities to comply with the demands of the FLQ, and according to Plan 3 set beforehand to respond to such a refusal... The Chenier financing cell has kidnapped the Minister of Unemployment and Assimilation of Quebec, Pierre Laporte. The minister will be executed at 10 p.m. Sunday if the ruling authorities do not respond favorably to the seven demands issued by the following the kidnapping of James Cross. Partial acceptance will be considered a refusal. Jesus. Well, I, I assume at this point they just start like putting diplomats in bomb shelters because they're taking everybody. They're taking everybody who ain't nailed down. But, like, the whole, like, according to plan three set beforehand, there was no plan beforehand. They are bluffing. The two groups aren't even talking to each other. They're just independently snatching whoever they can find in the phone book. Yeah, they have no means of contact. chaos. And, like, the authorities don't know this, but, like, there's no other third cell that is about to jump in. Like, Robert Camo is not coming to the rescue with a third kidnapping. If this goes sour. Thank God I have to change my name. <laughs> the second and third repeated this threat, as well as containing, respectively, a letter from Laporte to, Laporte to his wife, assuring her of his well-being, and a letter from Laporte to Premier Barassa, begging for his life. That evening, oh. shortly before the 10pm deadline, Barassa gave a short radio address asking the kidnappers to enter into communications with them and expressing a desire to create a mechanism by which the government could be certain that a release of the prisoners would result in the safe trade of Cross and Laporte. I just like the tonal difference between the two letters. Like, I'm fine, honey, they're treating me well, and oh god, please spare my life. <laughs> like, alright, write a letter home to your wife like you're a kid at summer camp, and then it's like, beg for your life from the government. The next day, 
the Liberation and Chenier cells released independent communiques, both with letters from the captives to Barassa, thanking him. The likewise authorized as their representative in negotiations, Robert Lemieux, 29, a flamboyant lawyer known for riding a motorcycle and defending accused terrorists. My two favorite activities. Oh, you're gonna like this guy. Lemieux (laughs) studied law at McGill and was heavily recruited by elite firms after graduation. His life took a jarring lurch sideways when his firm took an FLQ legal aid case and foisted it off on him. He pursued the case obsessively to the exclusion of all else and was later fired when he was caught drafting a speech for a defendant to deliver in court. He took every FLQ case he could get for little to no pay and neglected his personal life to the point that his wife and children left him and he wound up living out of a cheap motel whose tavern occasionally doubled as his office. (laughs) He's like, you want me to defend terrorists? I'll show you. I'll defend the shit out of these terrorists. (laughs) I am down. I'm going to defend them as best as they've ever been defended. He didn't even pick this. It was foisted upon him. And then he's like, well, may as well ruin my fucking life. He didn't have to do this. Absolutely not. None of this was necessary. And, like, the average lawyer who ends up defending, like, these kinds of cases does it out of, like, a sense of duty, or at the very least being paid. Oh, I mean, it's it's the principle that everyone deserves the best yeah. defense, but you don't enjoy it. Well, and you have to provide them the best possible defense to avoid an appeal, mm-hmm. because if you give them a shitty defense, then they are going to have grounds to appeal the conviction. If you want the conviction to stick, ironically, you have to do a good job defending them. It's a basic tenant of a legitimate legal system. (laughs) Yeah, you don't get to just be like, nope, you suck. No lawyer for you. Rot in a hole. Lemieux held daily, well-attended press conferences in the dining room of the hotel during the first week of the kidnapping crisis, during which he accused the police of arresting suspects with phony warrants, accused the government of secretly desiring armed confrontation with the kidnappers, and finally ended a radio interview with a hang on, hang in there, boys, for the kidnappers. Um. He was then arrested for obstruction of justice. (laughs) Yeah, not shocked. Gotta say. Mm Mm-mm. The government shows as its representative, Robert Demay, Barassa's personal lawyer and a normal fucking human being. On Monday, October 12th, Demay met Lemieux for the first time in a holding cell at MPD headquarters. In order to drop off communiques, Rose had to travel regularly to the island of Montreal. But on Tuesday, October 13th, Rose had a near miss with police, and after losing them, he made his way to the home of Louise Verreau who had previously agreed to act as an intermediary between the Chénier and Liberation cells. There, Rose and Jacques Cosette Coudel were able to meet their first contact since August. Rose was then reluctant to return to the safe house, instead staying with the whole. At 3pm that same day, Demay and Lemieux, out on bail, (laughs) began discussions. In the sense that Demay proposed opening the agenda by hammering out a mechanism to ensure the safe release of hostages, which Lemieux responded with a two-hour monologue about the history and motivations of the FLQ. Not suspicious at all. Both parties agreed that neither would speak to the media. A promise which Lemieux immediately violated with another hotel dining room press conference, standing alongside Pierre Vallier and Charles Gagnon, the recently released FLQ terrorists. (laughs) Good start. To quote Demay, (laughs) 
The television news comes on, and the first item is a press conference by Lemieux. The worst part of it was he systematically described our discussions without any relationship to the truth. October 14th, the two lawyers met again, and Lemieux agreed not to give any more press conferences. Less than an hour later, he gave another press conference. Oh, come on, dude. And they called Lemieux, (laughs) asking him to explain himself, which he very much did not. (laughs) This shit isn't hard. Come on. DeMay then said that he would like to meet them to meet next in Quebec City, where he would be able to consult Premier Barassa if need be. Lemieux said that he was prepared to go to Quebec City. DeMay flew to Quebec City. Lemieux did not. He instead made a short junket alongside Valier and Gagnon, speaking in front of hundreds of university students, encouraging them to take to the streets in support of the FLQ. <laughs> Uh, they just, like, they need a manager or something, like a terrorist manager, because no, nothing they're doing makes any sense. It's not, Apparently, on, most people with legal degrees were not willing to work with them. <laughs> Strange. Just somebody Odd who's got a, a diploma in business administration, give them a hand. Just anybody who's been able to run a successful KFC chain. <laughs> just... <laughs> At at this point, that's a step up. Not somebody who's constantly in fights with the M- Montreal Bar Association. Probably not, no. On October 15th, Lemieux gave another press conference, addressing himself to the kidnappers, calling them Dear Patriots, quote, I have very, very serious information that the police have found the Chenier cell and are only waiting to find the Liberation cell, which holds James Cross before attacking with force to free the two men. I am ab- not absolutely certain whether the information is well-founded. I take it very, very, very seriously. I demand an answer from the government as to whether this information is well-founded. So basically, I demand that the government let us know whether they're onto us or not. Even though if they're onto us, they're just gonna take us out. Basically. The government stands to gain exactly nothing by giving up this information. One, first of all, the government absolutely did not know where the Shani SL was. <laughs> Oh, so they're just paranoid. If if they if they knew where the Chenier cell, they would not wait to find the Liberation cell, <laughs> because like no, they're just gonna get the guy back. The composition of the kidnappers would not change. It would not make them more or less likely to kill James Cross. It would just weaken their position and make them more likely to barter Cross away in order to, to get free. Instead, the government issued a press release at 9 p.m. stating that its final offer was safe passage to a foreign country in return for hostages plus a recommendation of early release for five parole-eligible Felkeists. Hey, you get a, a plane ticket and a letter of recommendation. That's all any college student wants. That same day, the Barassa government requested and received the assistance of the Canadian Army and requested the federal government grant police emergency powers under the War Measures Act, acting on pressure from Mayor Drapeau of the, and the MPD. Deployment of troops to Montreal and Quebec City began soon after. These oh. troops... Do you want martial law? (laughs) This is how you get martial law. This is how. By picking an incompetent lawyer to act as your negotiator. (laughs) Great. Great. These troops, while in full battle dress, were generally treated as an auxiliary to the overextended municipal and provincial police, taking over guarding public buildings and homes of, of prominent officials. This brings us to the War Measures Act. 
The War Measures Act was passed by the Canadian Parliament in 1914, during the First World War. It was modeled off of Britain's own Defense of the Realm Act, but while Britain, Britain repealed their super-draconian rights-are-for-pussies legislation at the end of the war in 1918, <laughs> Canada just sort of kept it around. We're like, no, it'd be, it'd be fun if we could revoke everybody's basic human rights when we wanted to. That sounds like at a good time will. to us. That sounds fun. <laughs> when activated, the Act grants the executive certain emergency powers in the event of a state of war or insurrection, real or apprehended. Those emergency powers include the unilateral, unlimited ability to censor, control, and suppress any publication or communication, to arrest, detain, exclude, or deport any person, to control all transportation, imports, exports, production, and manufacture, and to seize or appropriate any and all property. That's pretty broad. <laughs> it's basically everything. <laughs> that's, yeah. That that's covers, all the things. <laughs> that's all the human rights. You've got them all. <laughs> Thorough. <laughs> the act has been used precisely three times in Canadian history. The first time in 1914, when it was used by the Borden administration to label Ukrainian Canadians as enemy aliens and place thousands in internment camps. Oops. Whoops. The second time in 1939 under the Mackenzie King administration, where it was used to forcefully intern political dissenters as such as fascist, communist, op opponents of conscription, as well as those labeled enemy aliens, primarily Japanese Canadians. But likewise, some German and Italian Canadians. Mostly Japanese. This was less... Mostly the Japanese. <laughs> this was less about communists and more about just flagrant racism. Yeah, like, some of these people were, like, actively speaking out against the government. But this was mostly just scooping up innocent Japanese people and giving them all the prison they wanted. <laughs> and taking... And then some. All their shit. And they didn't, taking all their shit. We stole all get, their shit. <laughs> they didn't get all their shit back when, when the internment ended. They got... Absolutely not. Not even an apology. We just opened the gate and we're like, well, alright. Not even a whoops. We didn't even give them a no, whoops. No, <laughs> we didn't give them a whoops for, for many years. Yeah, yeah. I think the whoops was recent. It was dist distressingly so. The MPD never wanted anything as vast as the powers granted during the two world wars. What they wanted was the authority to conduct warrantless searches, to rest without charges, and to detain for longer than 24 hours without presenting the detained to a judge. This only against persons suspected of being a member of the FLQ, an associate willing to provide merit material support, and individuals with connections to extremist groups likely to incite violence. It is still, nonetheless, fairly extreme. A little. Setting aside the problem of whether this legislation should even exist, was either the province of Quebec or the city of Montreal in a state of real or apprehended insurrection? The short answer is no. <laughs> the long answer is that the FLQ never had the numbers or resources to provide a credible threat of overturning even the municipal government. They always had far fewer than a hundred militants at any given point, with at most a few hundred active supporters providing material support, and the authorities knew it. Two kidnappings and a few large violent street demonstrations does not an insurrection make. They would struggle to uh, to overthrow the sanitation department of Montreal. They're not they're no. not about to take over even the the Montreal municipal government. They're not going anywhere. They could barely conquer the Montreal library. At most they could hold down a few branches. Yeah, they're not going to overthrow the province of Quebec. That's certainly not happening. The Trudeau government was initially reluctant to enact the War Measures Act, insisting on a request in writing from both Premier Barassa and Mayor Jean-Paul. 
On October 16th, 11 a.m., letters in hand, Trudeau introduced a motion in Parliament to approve proclamation of the War Measures Act. The enactment passed the House on a vote of 190 to 16, the only dissent coming from the small left-wing New Democratic Party. To quote NDP leader Todd Lee Douglas, the government I submit is using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Hours before the motion had even been introduced, beginning at 4 a.m., MPD and SQ officers had already begun a series of arrests and raids. Arrests included known members of the FLQ like Gagnon and Valliere, and sympathizers like Lemieux, as well as many prominent labor leaders, academics, journalists, and artists. Some were arrested politely and peacefully. Others woke up to the police in their bedroom and guns in their face. Oh, can't be too careful when you're arresting, um, artists. <laughs> Put down the pen! I think it's a pick! It's gotta get the, the big guns for that. Heaven forbid, they're painting. Unsupervised. The police conducted an estimated 4,600 searches and detained nearly 500 people, fewer than 10% of whom were ever charged with a crime, most of whom were released within the week. The student strikes faded away, and the move was widely supported by the media. It likewise had widespread public support, 89% approval among Anglophones, 86% among Francophones, which should answer the question of whether or not the FLQ had successfully won the hearts and minds of the average Canadian. No. <laughs> the hard no. When no. even the people that you are supposedly fighting for overwhelmingly vote that, like, yes, the government should be rounding you up and blocking you away. Yeah. <laughs> you're not doing a good job. Like, you're just, you're not. It is only later that the use of the War Measures Act became controversial, and much of the opposition to it tends to exaggerate the breadth of its usage, as if the political and due process rights of all Canadians were suspended rather than simply those of individuals associated with groups promoting the use of violence and criminal acts to overturn the government. Well, yeah, like, they didn't go around rounding other people up. They kept it to a dull roar. I would simply say that the suspension of rights of people within the radical fringe of society can be tightly controlled and limited in scope, while still being unnecessary and insufficiently justified. The Trudeau administration was very careful about its use of emergency powers, but the demand for their use was heavily affected by the hysteria of the moment. The War Measures Act was later replaced by the far less draconian emergency powers act and it's not hard to see why i mean all you gotta do is just elect one fucking loon and we're off to the races you know it just feels like the sort of thing regardless of whether it was used well in the past you probably just shouldn't have it <laughs> no exactly it's like oh well our our house could get infested with ants someday so we better hang on to this dynamite like no it's not it's too much. It's overkill. Yeah, it's like, don't keep the arsenic next to the baby baby formula, you know? No, exactly. It's just, it's not, it's not worth it. While James Cross's holding conditions were far from luxurious, the Liberation Cell had had more time and preparation to collect their resources they needed to hold, guard, and provide a ho for a hostage over the long term. The Chenier Cell had fewer people, especially after they became separated from their leader, Paul Rose, and hadn't even had t the time or money to appropriately stock up on food. They kept Laporte bound to a bed with handcuffs and a chain-style dog leash, occasionally checking to see if he needed anything, but otherwise communicating with him only at mealtimes, which largely consisted of canned spaghetti. Nobody uh, could do a grocery run? Yeah. Laporte at one point gave them $20 to go out and get literally anything else to feed him. 
Good God, when your hostage is giving you grocery money. It's not good. Not good. Laporte and his kidnappers watched the news constantly, the kidnappers hoping for any concession from the government they could take as a win. After negotiations failed, the army was called in and the War Measures Act announced, Laporte became quiet and listless. That Friday, when the kidnappers went in the other room, watching the news, they heard breaking glass and rushed into the back bedroom to find Laporte attempting to squeeze through a broken window, still blindfolded but having slipped free from the dog chain and handcuffs. They pulled him back in and applied tourniquets to slow the bleeding from a deep wound to his left wrist. They dressed the wound to his left wrist as well as another to his left thumb and chest and sat him on a chair in the living room. Laporte begged to be taken to the hospital, but they refused and attempted to comfort him. When he didn't respond, they removed the blindfold, uh, but he didn't look at them, just hung his head against his chest. Oh, that doesn't sound good. Three considered releasing Laporte or simply leaving him there and driving away. But without Paul Rose, they didn't know what to do. Lordy left and met Rose at the Montreal apartment of Louise Verbeau, where he had gone to ground. There, he begged Rose to come back, but Rose refused, for fear of another encounter with police. Lordy, likewise, decided to stay in Montreal, leaving Laporte alone with Jacques Rose and Francis Simard. While the members of the Chénier cell claimed to have intentionally executed Laporte, their account of events does not match up with the evidence. For one, Paul Rose claims to have been there, when multiple witnesses place him in Montreal. It is far more likely that they killed him accidentally in the midst of a struggle. On October 17th, Laporte became increasingly agitated. The two found it harder and harder to physically control him, even weakened as he was from the injuries of the day before. It's unclear exactly who did it, but one of the two grabbed Laporte from behind during a particularly violent altercation. Then, in an attempt to quiet him, he twisted the collar of Laporte's high-necked wool sweater, likewise twisting the chain Laporte wore around his neck and garroting him. Oh, because that's how you relax everybody who's hostile. Just, you know, gosh, when they were teaching me de-escalation and incident management for my mental health gig, that's definitely the first strategy they go to. Just grab them by the throat and twist. Comes them right down. Holy shit. <laughs> no, don't do that, kids. No. For those for those uh, playing along at home, do not grab anybody, anybody by the throat and twist their collar. I guarantee you. Yeah, worst case scenario, you kill them. Best case scenario, you cut off their oxygen and make them panic. <laughs> there is no scenario, though, in which they're like, you know what, I have been behaving unreasonably. I'm sorry. And then they settle down. That's not, no. Rose carried Laporte's body into the garage, placing it in the trunk of the same light blue Chevrolet. He drove down Chemin de la Savane, a road that ran alongside the nearby Canadian Armed Forces airbase, while Simard followed behind in his second vehicle. Rose abandoned the car, then rode with Simard to Longueuil, threw away the weapons used in the kidnapping, and took a bus to Montreal to meet with Paul Rose, who composed a communique announcing Laporte's death. It was no more than a crude, handwritten note that read, The arrogance of the federal government and its hireling Barassa has forced the FLQ to act. Pierre Laporte, Minister of Unemployment and Assimilation, was executed at 6.18 this evening by the Dieppe cell. We shall overcome. Right, so they're like, how do we spin this? And they're like, let's incriminate ourselves. Let's say it was murder. Awesome. That's actually one of the stranger things about it. They didn't mean to kill him. 
but then they're like, you know what? Let's just make this worse for ourselves. Let's let's go for it. Police ordered CKLM and CKAC to immediately surrender further communications from the FLQ rather than broadcasting them, which feels a bit late. Uh, yeah, gates open, horses gone. <laughs> like October eighteenth, police received a tip from a neighbor leading them to the safe house in Saint Hubert. Well, they found traces of blood alongside draft communiques, names, addresses, and phone numbers. My god, they really just do leave every piece of incriminating paperwork lying around. Like, clear the place out. I know you're shocked from just having accidentally killed a man. But, like, you tidy up. <laughs> it's like they just left behind a filing cabinet labeled evidence. Like, what? <laughs> One of the addresses found at the safe house was for a Montreal apartment complex on Queen Mary Road. One of the tenants, Colette Terrien, of Unit 12, had been involved in a hit-and-run with Jacques Rose in November 1968. Police returned to the building on November 6th, just after 7 p.m., and knocked on the door. There was movement inside, followed by a female voice saying, Patience, patience, and a young male voice saying, One minute, one minute. After a search of the apartment, police discovered Bernard Lorty in a bedroom closet underneath a heap of clothes. Oh my god, they really... <laughs> they really tried to pull that. They arrested him alongside Terrien, her female roommate, and her brother, who had returned home during the raid. Upon leaving, they padlocked the door. In fact, the other three members of the Chenier cell had been in the apartment when the police arrived, but they had crawled behind a false wall they had made in a walk-in closet by the front door. Lorhi had merely sacrificed himself to hold off police and ensure his comrades had time to hide. Oh, sneaky. Sneaky. Points for that, actually. False closet walls. Who knew? Three remained there for over 21 hours until the next day when officers took a dinner break from dusting the place for fingerprints, allowing them to sneak out the back. Upon returning to find the back door unlocked, police conducted a more thorough search, only to discover the false wall. Police found the Liberation Cell hideout in North Montreal through following Jacques Langteau's heavily pregnant wife, who alongside her toddler son was quasi-homeless and living on handouts from other FLQ supporters after being essentially abandoned by her husband, making it difficult oh. for her to effectively go to ground. Well, that's shitty. Suzanne Langteau led police to the Cosette Trudels through a check she had written to Louise that May and a bank manager who informed them that Mrs. Cosette Trudel sometimes signed her name signed with her maiden name, Longtho. Next, the SQ found an abandoned red Renault belonging to Mr. Cosette Trudel, who had been living in a Montreal apartment on Saint-André Street at the time of registration. The proprietor of the building revealed that the apartment had previously housed Jacques Longtho before he had handed it over to the Cosette Trudels in April. The couple had then moved out in mid-September. The proprietor's information then led them to the moving company, who themselves led them to the family who was holding onto the couple's furniture. My god, they left s They left <laughs> such a paper trail. This is not an exciting investigation, it's all just like, and then we looked at the bank records. I mean, admittedly, this is some good police work. <laughs> yeah, it's just not very exciting, because they, they kind of just Whoops. left it all out there. On November 25th, the mother and daughter of the family met the Cosette Trudels for dinner, who police then tailed almost all the way to their North Montreal hideout, losing them only a few blocks away on Marshall Street. The police solved this problem by interviewing the neighbors, who quickly told them about an apartment that had been rented in mid-September by a bunch of young people that always had heavy curtains covering the window to the back bedroom. 
God, nosy neighbors do it again. By December 1st, the police had sufficient evidence collected through surveillance to be certain that this was where the FLQ was holding Cross. The next day, they arrested the Cosette Trudels, who admitted to kidnapping Cross, but little else. Rather than risk a confrontation, the police decided to con convince the kidnappers to surrender peacefully. Later that night, they barricaded the street, evacuated nearby residences, then cut the power and water to the hideout, to which the Liberation Cell responded by throwing a pipe with a communique out into the street, requesting Jewish communist and lawyer Bernard Mergle as their representative in negotiations. Mergle was initially reluctant in that, unlike Lemieux, he was not an FLQ sympathizer and did not wish to be associated with them. Also unlike Lemieux, Fair. he was a competent negotiator, quickly reaching an agreement with the Cuban government before entering the FLQ hideout to ascertain the well-being of Cross and inform the kidnappers of the deal he had reached with Demay. L'Ile Sainte-Hélène, a small island in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, was declared temporary Cuban territory. The remaining members of the Liberation Cell drove to the island with a police escort. Mergle in the car with the kidnappers as a show of good faith. The police stopped at the bridge leading to the island while the Liberation Cell drove on. The Cosette Trudels were released and they, alongside the other members' wives and children, joined their comrades at the Expo 67 Canadian Pavilion on Lille Saint-Hélène. Cuban officials there handled the, handled the release of Cross, who had at that point spent the last 59 days in captivity. Holy shit. Then the Liberation Cell and their families boarded the Canadian military plane to Havana, where they lived in largely unhappy exile. I like that Canada not only negotiates with terrorists, we negotiate with terrorists so hard, we will temporarily give part of Canada to Cuba. Also, I'm really hoping that this guy's uh, terrorist cell fed him something other than canned spaghetti for 59 straight days. Oh, dear lord. <laughs> Can you imagine? You'd just be like, no, I picked death. I picked death over Chef Boyardee. <laughs> it's like, I know you guys are a bunch of, like, 20-somethings, but, like, this man is 49, nine years old. He needs a goddamn vegetable. <laughs> Please just get this man a carrot. <laughs> Simar and the Rose Brothers were eventually tracked down in a, hiding in a dirt basement they had dug beneath the house of fellow felquiste Michel Viget and convinced to turn themselves in on December 28th. As Paul Rose was unable to retain Robert Lemieux, who had been charged with obstructing justice and seditious conspiracy, he instead represented himself, wearing the exact same clothes he had been arrested in every day of the trial, including a too-small brown sweater with a hole in the elbow. <laughs> yeah, feels like a bad plan. Every, every bit of that, from the outfit to the self-representation. It all just feels like you're trying to go to jail. Like, it's like, dude, you already have a lazy eye and, like, resting terrorist face. Maybe you should buy a different outfit. Yeah, just something without holes in the elbow. Rose submitted two pretrial motions to dismiss the charges against him, the first claiming he could not receive a fair trial due to the publicity around the case, the second that he would not be judged by a jury of his peers. Due to the fact that women were banned from serving, and Quebec law required men to own at least $5,000 of property or pay more than $500 a year in rent. That's over oh. 113000 in property, 11300 in rent per annum in modern terms. <laughs> That's a lot of rent. There's I was going to say, huh, I pay more than that, but no, I don't, I don't pay more than that. Holy shit. 
You and I might, actually, but only because we live in extremely expensive jurisdictions. Wait, what was what was the what was the amount in days today's terms? Eleven thousand three hundred dollars in rent every year. Oh no, god damn it, I definitely pay that. Fuck. <laughs> I pay slightly more than that, but I live in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, and I'm in New York City, so <laughs> I pay more in rent than I pay in food. <laughs> Oh god, what a what have we done? But the average working class person absolutely would not have paid this. No, back when things were affordable and you could have a middle class existence on one salary. Rose likewise accused the judge of colluding with the prosecutor after seeing them leave the courtroom by the same door. He was finally permanently expelled from the courtroom and physically dragged out of the room after referring to the same judge as a whore of the establishment. No, you're worse. At least whores earn their money. Okay. They work for it. <laughs> I could, yeah, I could see you getting kicked out of a courtroom for that. Not, yep, that'll do it. <laughs> At best, undecorous. <laughs> yep, that'll get you kicked out. Uh, for sure, for sure. As the trial could not continue without either the defense or defense counsel present, the court requested the Montreal Bar Association to appoint a lawyer to act as an amicus curia friend of the court, and intervene on behalf of Rose. Rose received transcripts of proceedings in his cell before finally being readmitted to court out of necessity when it was time for him to make his legal defense. The other members of the Chenier cell were similarly belligerent. Lemieux was freed in time to represent Jacques Rose, but he utterly failed to mount a competent defense and on what po on, at one point ripped a copy of the British North America Act and threw half of it over the head of the judge, who simply ignored him. Yeah, that's that's not a legal defense. I didn't go to law school, but I feel confident. Yeah, I'm not an expert. Yeah, I don't think you can just start ripping up historical documents and flinging them at the judge. Jacques Rose, nonetheless, avoided a murder conviction, unlike his brother, and was instead convicted of accessory to kidnapping. Eventually, years later, Lanctot, the Cosette Trudel, Carboneau, and Langlois would all return to Canada to face justice and relatively lenient sentences in light of the punishment that was their self-imposed exile. By 1982, all the Felkis we have discussed here were released from prison and more or less successfully reintegrated into society. Huh. Some rejected militantism. Others never truly changed their minds. Some, like Geoffroy, struggled to readjust to life outside of prison. Others, like Gagnon and Valier, integrated into less violent versions of their old politics. Gagnon founding the Marxist-Leninist en lutte to peacefully advocate a workers' revolution, Valier eventually renouncing terrorism, joining the Parti Québécois, uh, embracing his homosexuality, and spending the rest of his life advocating for gay and women's rights, respect for indigenous people, and the environment. <laughs> oh, so it turns out you weren't hateful, you were just gay and a little bit mad about it. <laughs> There's there's better outlets for that than terrorism, my friend. No one had to die. <laughs> to God. There was a community waiting for you, my good sir. They had gay bars in Montreal in the 1960s. I feel very confident of that. In particular, Paul Rose became a pillar of society. He spent time as a worker at a care facility where he was beloved got a doctorate in sociology and economics, and later became president of the Quebec New Democratic Party. Though the fact that he had been sentenced to life meant that he was never he never qualified to run as a candidate. Forty years after his murder, in October 2010, 
a monument was raised to Pierre Laporte in the Saint Laurent Seaway Park with the epitaph, Nul ne vit pour soi-même, nul ne meurt pour soi-même. No one lives for oneself, no one dies for oneself. It's a very romantic monument for a dude who got so tired of eating canned spaghetti that he threw himself out the window and almost bled to death. Yeah. See, the more I read about Pierre Laporte's life, the more sad I felt. <laughs> because he was fighting against the very kinds of economic injustice and political malfeasance that resulted in Quebec being the way it was. <laughs> yeah, they really didn't choose their targets very carefully, ever. One of the reasons why Quebec was as bad as it was, like, part of it was anti-Quebecois discrimination. Part of it was the stigma against French Canadians, but part of it was also just the corruption of the Francophone provincial government. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Duplessis was a union buster. He was one of the people that created the social environment in which labor exploitation of urban Francophones was easy. <laughs> No, exactly. And to, to go after people who are specifically on your side and working to fix the problem. Like, a lot of this was impatience. Yeah. Quebec was slowly coming out of this sort of economic exploitation, underdevelopment, and hardcore traditionalism. But it just wasn't happening fast enough for the tastes of the people on the ground. In the modern day, there's still this sort of idea of the Anglo bosses controlling Quebec, but one of the reasons why separatism is far less popular than it has ever been uh, in modern Canadian politics is because a lot of the problems of 1960s Quebec were addressed. Quebec has far greater autonomy in, in its politics. The, the average Anglophone in Quebec still has a higher wage than the average Francophone, but they also have a lower median wage. Which means that hmm. not only are there more rich Anglophones, there are also more poor Anglophones. Interesting. In, 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 in essence, we've sort of reached parity between Francophones and Anglophones in Quebec. Hmm. As sort of a bizarre coda, one Felkiste who did not return from exile is Mario Bachin. Uh, not because he simply lived out the rest of his life elsewhere, but because he was shot to death in a Parisian street. <laughs> oh, uh, that would do it. That's, yep. yeah. There's something of a conspiracy theory, not particularly well-founded, that that is very popular among old separatists in Quebec, that he was in fact assassinated by the orders of the Canadian government. But this is somewhat unlikely. <laughs> uh, especially because, like, we didn't go out of our way to assassinate any of the other ones. <laughs> Yeah, it seems weird that we're like, that one left the country, get him. Yeah, like, everybody else got six months after they came back, and we just decided to ice this dude? Especially because, like, he was only involved in, like, the, the Mont Royal mailbox bombings. <laughs> it seems unlikely. It, it seems deeply unlikely, but it is sort of like a weird coda. Yeah, I could see that. But yeah. Yeah, so cute. Wow, what a journey this has been. I was I was shocked by a lot of this. Because, like, I knew tons about the FLQ, but I had never heard of people like Robert Lemieux and, like, 
wow, I, I can't believe they left that out. <laughs> I always thought the October Crisis took place over, like, the course of an afternoon. I didn't realize they had that fucker for 59 days. Oh, man, no, that guy... And, like, apparently the entire time, like, he wasn't allowed to look at them. They always had him facing backwards while they watched the television. Oh. So he just got to, like, stare at a wall for 59 days while the rest of them fucking argued. Yep. That's not great. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and this series, I guess. Uh, And we hope that you'll join us next week for a missing persons case. Hooray! Our, Our roots. I have been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are fat, Fat, French, French, and and fabulous. fabulous.